Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Last week, we began studying Jesus's parables in the Gospel of Luke with special emphasis on those parables that we only find in Luke. So as we discussed, Jesus's parables can take many different forms. Some of his teaching comes in the form of stories. Some looks like practical, everyday life examples. And other lessons even sound like a kind of riddle. But all of these parables serve a sort of dual purpose. They simultaneously reveal the truth to those with ears to hear and conceal the truth from those unwilling to listen. So in order to properly understand Jesus's parables, we must be willing to think, reflect and even wrestle with what it is he says in order to get The deeper meaning of Jesus' words, we must look closer. So we'll do that today in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Feel free to open your Bibles there. And if you didn't bring a Bible, use one of ours. Take it home if you don't have one. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for your word that we have the privilege to read and study, that I have the privilege to preach and teach. I pray that we would be attentive to your word this morning. I pray that as many of us have embarked on New Year's resolutions uh, and that maybe we've had mixed success so far, I pray that perhaps a few of us are reading your word in new and different ways, uh, trying to develop that discipline to spend time in your word, which is always rewarding. Uh, Not that it's always going to be a wonderful, dramatic, emotional experience that comes without challenges, but reading your word is never a fruitless exercise. Even when we don't see the fruit, even when we don't know that the fruit is there, uh, there is always reason to read your word. And that includes when we're at home, during the week, but it includes right now as well. So be with us as we read your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us understand your words by the power of your spirit. And Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus, who brings us together. Thank you, Lord, that you came, you lived, you died, you rose, you ascended, and you will come again. I pray that we would be faithful until you come as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people made in your image, as your children and your servants. Help us be faithful until you come. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for this people and this place. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we encounter one of Jesus' most well-known, appreciated, and beloved teachings. And that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, most people, including non-Christians... And those who rarely, if ever, open a Bible probably have some basic familiarity with this story. It's inspired hospitals, charities, and humanitarian organizations for generations. Political leaders like George W. Bush, Tony Blair, and the late Queen Elizabeth II cited the Good Samaritan 
in their speeches. One author even notes a phenomenon called the Good Samaritan effect. Studies have shown that the better someone knows this story, the more likely they are to contribute to charitable causes. But the unfortunate truth is that many of us reduce this parable down to an oversimplified, moralistic lesson about being a good neighbor. Or even broader than that, just being a nice person. Now, to a degree, that's all well and good. The world would be a better place if we were all good neighbors and nice people. But as we'll see today, there is more to this parable. There is more to this story if we look closer. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, first, let's try to get a feel for Jesus's conversation partner. We know his profession. He's a lawyer. That means he's a respected and educated interpreter of God's law. He was probably looked favorably upon by most Jewish people in that day and age. Though in the Gospel of Luke, lawyers do tend to be quite hostile toward Jesus. And this lawyer's hostility towards Jesus is confirmed with his desire to put Jesus to the test. He's not coming to Jesus with honest, innocent curiosity. This lawyer intends to publicly challenge Jesus. With this question. And we also learn that this lawyer is concerned with the question of eternal life. Namely, what must he do to acquire it? Now, before we pile on about how misguided this lawyer's question might be, it's worth noting that Jesus does not explicitly rebuke him for asking it. But at the same time, it's not hard to sense the lawyer's assumption that inheriting eternal life may be about checking boxes or jumping through hoops. But to the lawyer's credit, he gives a good response to Jesus's follow up question. The lawyer suspects that if he loves God with his whole being and if he loves his neighbor as himself, then he'll be just fine. He'll have nothing to worry about. Jesus commends him for that interpretation, and he assures him that if he does this, if he loves God and loves his neighbor, he will, in fact, live. It's also worth noting that this lawyer did not pull that answer out of thin air. He didn't come up with it out of his own brilliance. 
That response comes from the Old Testament. The part about loving God comes from Deuteronomy 6. The part about loving your neighbor comes from Leviticus 19. I mention that because sometimes we think that loving God and loving neighbor is a New Testament thing. It's an entire Bible thing. But all that said, if this lawyer were truly wise, this is the point when he would walk away. He asked Jesus a question. Jesus helped him discover the answer. So now's the time to go and do it. But then we see verse 29, where the lawyer asks another question. Who is my neighbor? There are two big problems with that question. First, the lawyer asks it, desiring to justify himself. Once again, poor motives bubble up to the surface. He's not pressing Jesus for more details out of an earnest desire to learn. He's trying to prove himself. That's problem number one. But the second problem with the lawyer's follow-up question, who is my neighbor, is the content. He's trying to put up guardrails to God's commands. He's attempting to establish boundaries, set limitations, and give qualifications to the second part of that good answer he gave, loving his neighbor as himself. One commentator writes, To ask this question, who is my neighbor, is a polite way of asking who is not my neighbor, or who does not deserve my love, or whose lack of food or shelter can I ignore, or who can I hate. So how will Jesus respond to the lawyer's follow-up? You guessed it. Jesus gives him a parable. Picking up in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was fraught with danger. And this unnamed man learned that lesson the hard way. 
But thankfully, as he lies dying in a ditch, help comes along. Even better, the first person is a priest and the second is a Levite. These were holy men who knew God's law like the back of their hands. Men well aware of God's expectations that his people love their neighbors as themselves. This poor man won the lottery with these two guys passing by at the right time. Or so he thought. Because both see the dying man. But both avoid him. Both move along. There are debates about why they kept walking. Perhaps as a priest and a Levite, they were concerned about the ritual purity ramifications of touching what might soon be a dead body. Or perhaps they kept going because they didn't want to suffer the same fate. But really, the parable doesn't seem very concerned with analyzing the priests and the Levites' reasons or motives. The simple, undeniable point of the story is that they didn't stop. But then just when this poor soul is as good as dead, that third person comes along. He's the type of character the lawyer might least expect at this point in the story. Because he's a Samaritan. The complex ethnic, religious, and social tensions between Jews and Samaritans went back centuries. If this dying man saw that his last hope for survival was a Samaritan stranger, he probably figured that it was the end. No Samaritan would stop to help him, a Jew. And to be honest, he probably wouldn't stop to help the Samaritan either if the shoe was on the other foot. But this Samaritan, of all the people who pass by, this is the person who has compassion. He loves his neighbor at great personal risk. On a dangerous road like this, with thieves lurking, the last thing you want to do is slow down. The inn that he went into may not have welcomed someone like him. And the innkeeper could easily take advantage of the Samaritan's generosity in his absence. But even with all those potential costs, the Samaritan loves his Jewish neighbor As himself. So once again, the lawyer, perhaps begrudgingly this time, gives Jesus the right answer. The one who showed mercy was the one who loved his neighbor. So Jesus challenges the lawyer to go and do likewise. Now, there's a long and interesting history of how to understand and apply the parable of the Good Samaritan. Giants of church history like Origen, Augustine, and Martin Luther took more allegorical approaches. They turned the story into a primarily spiritual lesson filled with symbolism. At times, doing some questionable interpretive gymnastics to show what the parable was really about. 
We mentioned earlier the standard approach that most readers take today. We interpret this story as simply about being a nice person. One author notes a 1970s conversation with someone from Sierra Leone. Their takeaway from this parable was that one should accept help from whoever would offer it, even the enemy. And that meant that his country was warranted in accepting aid from the Soviet Union. Now, some of those interpretations may be more legitimate than others. But the real question is how Christians like us should understand this parable today. Well, a few thoughts. First, I would propose to you this morning that while this parable is very much about being a good neighbor, it isn't just about being a good neighbor. The details of the story, namely the fact that the positive example was a Samaritan, reminds us of Jesus's far more challenging command than just loving your neighbors. His command that we love our enemies. Jesus taught this earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, But love your enemies, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If you think about it, the phrase Good Samaritan might even be a kind of backhanded insult. Imagine going to a different country and someone saying to a friend, no, don't worry, this one is a good American. That kind of betrays an assumption that the rest are bad, that they might even be enemies. So beyond loving our neighbors, this parable challenges us to love our enemies. If you're a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, imagine the challenge of stopping and loving Joe Biden at great personal risk. If you're a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, imagine the challenge of stopping and loving Donald Trump at great personal risk. Imagine the LGBTQ activist loving the faithful member of Westboro Baptist Church. Imagine the concerned elementary school parent loving the advocate for pro-trans books in the school library. Depending on your own leanings, imagine the challenge of loving the racist, loving the rapist, loving the capitalist, loving the communist, loving the terrorist, or loving the pacifist. The challenge of this parable goes deeper than just loving our neighbors. It challenges us to love our enemies. I would also propose to you this morning that this parable isn't just about loving people. This entire passage, especially Jesus' back and forth with the lawyer leading up to the parable, teaches a deeper lesson about loving God. Those two commands, love for God and love for neighbor, are intimately connected. Our love for God drives our love for people. 
Our love for people reflects our love for God. We love God by loving the people he made in his image. And the best way to love people made in God's image is to faithfully love the God who created them. Jesus' words in Matthew 25 remind us of this truth. Our love for God and our love for people are so tightly woven together that we can't neatly separate them. In fact, loving the people around us, whether they be poor or hungry or naked or in prison, like in Matthew 25, loving them may be, in a roundabout way, a way of loving God himself. When we love them, we love God. Now, I think that's all helpful in understanding this parable. But there's something beyond interpretation that matters greatly. I mean, the lawyer was clearly a good interpreter. He understood what Jesus was saying. He answered both of Jesus's questions quite well. But the step beyond interpretation is application. The step beyond understanding is doing. That's where the lawyer got tripped up. And that's where we tend to get tripped up, too. It's great if we leave here today with a better understanding of this parable. But how do we actually do what Jesus teaches here? Well, one practical lesson from this parable is that our love for our neighbors is not selective. We don't pick and choose which neighbor has earned our compassion. We don't distribute our love based on who's earned it, who's worthy of it, or who can repay it. If that's our understanding and our practice of love, then Christ's love on the cross for sinners like us, people who didn't earn it, aren't worthy of it, and can never repay it, that's going to pose some real problems for us. We don't just love our neighbors who are like us ethnically, socially, religiously, or economically. If they're in front of us, they are our neighbor. Full stop. We have several neighbors that we've gotten to know pretty well. And they're not perfect, but overall, we really like them. We have no problem watering their plants in the summer. We have no problem shoveling their driveways in the winter. We have no problem having them over for pizza because we genuinely enjoy those people. Think about it. It's not that hard to love your neighbor all the time. If you're Rick and Linda Aiden, it's not that hard to love your neighbors because you have the Hudsons next door. If you're the Finnemores, it's not that hard to love the Heinzmans backing up to you. If you're the Kinseys, it's not that hard to love the Starks down the street. Loving your neighbor is not always that big of a challenge. But we also have neighbors who yell cuss words at their dogs in the middle of the night. People who don't care for their property. And people who are just generally unpleasant. But I don't get to decide to love them less than the neighbors that I like. Less than the neighbors who are easily lovable. As a follower of Christ, I don't get to handpick 
who I love and who I don't. Our love for our neighbors is not selective. But on top of that, our love for our neighbors is concrete. Margaret Thatcher once said, No one would remember the Good Samaritan if he had only good intentions. He had money as well. It's a bit crass, but there's something to it. As we've discussed many times before on Sunday mornings, biblical love is not merely a warm sentiment in our hearts or a theoretical conviction in our heads or well wishes that we express with our mouths. Love is a concrete action that we perform with our hands and our feet for someone else's good. Love is tangible. Love is visible. James reminds us of that truth in his famously difficult passage. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. One of those works that gives evidence of a living, growing, active faith is the work of loving our neighbors, loving people around us. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, We make our friends... We make our enemies, but God makes our next-door neighbor. The old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when it spoke, not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty toward one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice which is personal or even pleasurable. But we have to love our neighbor because he is there a much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He is the sample of humanity which is actually given us. We're good at talking about loving people in vague generalities. We profess grand ideals about peace, kindness, and harmony with our fellow man. But before we pontificate about these broad principles, we can put our money where our mouths are by loving the person down the hall or the person across the street. It's a lot easier to change your profile picture on social media or slap a bumper sticker on your car than it is to love the person standing directly in front of you. But our love is concrete. It must be visible and tangible. Now, I mentioned earlier that figures like Origen and Augustine and Martin Luther had some very creative ways of interpreting this parable. And their interpretations were not without fault. But one good contribution they made was seeing Jesus in the figure of the Good Samaritan. In the stories we tell ourselves, we're usually the hero. We're the ones who swoop in to save the poor, wounded, hopeless traveler. But in the big story of the gospel, we're the ones who are poor, wounded, 
hopeless, and even worse, sinful. We deserve to be left for dead. But Christ came to help, heal, and save those who believe in him at great personal cost. The cost of his own life on the cross. So may we read this parable and read the Gospel of Luke and understand the love that God has shown for us in Christ. May God's love for us shape our love for him and then empower and challenge us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And by God's grace, may we inherit eternal life thanks to the fact that Jesus better than the Good Samaritan, came for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this parable that has been shared so many times, has been told so many times, has inspired so much goodness and generosity and compassion and kindness. There are so many places that exist that cite this passage, that cite this parable as their mission, as their vision, as their reason for existence. And we thank you for that. It's a great privilege to read this parable and read this story. But I also pray that we would get something beyond just loving our neighbors from it, that we would get something beyond just being a nice person being charitable or being hospitable. I pray that we would be challenged to love you more, knowing how much you have done for us. You came for us in a way that is far greater than anything the Good Samaritan did for that wounded traveler. So, Lord, I pray that knowing that love that you've shown for us would inspire us to be more like the Good Samaritan, to do what he did, to love our neighbors, which really is a reflection of our love for you. I pray that you would help us really do this. Again, it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to study it. It's another thing to understand it and pick it apart verse by verse and word by word and look at all the nuances of it. That's all well and good. That's all really important. But Lord, help us actually apply it. It's really much easier to hold these ideas in our heads than it is to actually live them out, to actually do them. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit's power, you would help us do these things. Not just come to churches and read the story and study the story, but when we leave our churches, when we leave this church, live out what we've read, live out what we've learned. Lord, help us love people the way that you have loved us, Help us do it for your glory. Lord, thank you that the love you've shown for us gives us eternal life. And I pray that we would give people a peek at that eternal life through the way we love them. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.